turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12. And as a reminder of where we're at in the letter, last week we saw that Paul doesn't want his particular audience, the church of Corinth, to be uninformed on this topic of spiritual gifts. He described to them the source of the gifts as being from the Spirit and showed a bit of their variety by listing many, but perhaps not all, of the specific gifts. And Paul is coming back now to this problem that he's encountered and addressed several times in the letter already, this problem of factions, of disunity within the body of Corinth, particularly disunity that seemed to have arisen due to a deficient, a lacking understanding and usage of the Spirit's gifting. And in today's text from chapter 12, starting in verse 12 and going to the end of the chapter, Paul is coming back to his principle of gifts having been given to the church, not for the individual, but for the common good of the whole church. No one should be inclined to think less or more of how they had been gifted, since God is the one who both fashioned each part and then put it all together. The church is his masterpiece, created for his glory. And Paul turns now to an extended metaphor of the human body to illustrate the mutual need that all of the limbs and organs have for each other. All are needed and all are honored. I encourage you to pay attention to how Paul switches back and forth between this metaphor of the physical human body and the truth of the church, the reality of the church. This is the word of God. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit, For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, 
and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Would you pray with me? Father, we come again into your presence, desperate for you. We read here in another text in Scripture of the beauty of your design for the church. And we desire for that to be our experience. We know the facts that Jesus, you purchase the church by your blood and spirit that you fill and empower the church in our witness and that the Father is himself calling worshipers that were known and loved before the creation of the world. We want to have these truths awakened in our hearts and lit into flame that they become more than words on a page or words spoken into the air but become part of the very fabric and makeup of our lives. We do live as sojourners in exile, struggling between the kingdom that already is and that which is to come. Even today, there are so many potential distractions from your word and the work of your spirit in our lives. So we plead with you to bind the work of the adversary that would lead to doubt and despair Instead, point us to Jesus, that we fall down in worship, that we rise in renewed faith at your great salvation. May we celebrate, perhaps more than before because of this text, may we celebrate the church as Christ's body and rejoice in the uniquely diverse roles that each of us are called to in it. We ask this, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. So I need to start by getting perhaps the most obvious illustration out of the way. Because when Paul spends almost 20 verses on an extended metaphor of the importance of every limb, organ, and appendage of the body it behooves me to at least bring up my missing finger so it's not the elephant in the room. As most of you know by now, not to make this about me, but just over a decade ago, I was performing some ill-advised repair in my car and ended up doing that with the engine running and severed my right index finger. So if you didn't know that story, I pray that I didn't just distract you so it's all you can think of from now on. But skipping past the initial trauma, the blood loss, the loss of consciousness, parts of that event. What I discovered quickly is just how much the body really does need every part. Just how much a little thing like an index finger is needed for the simplest of tasks. I mean, things like picking up a glass of water, you don't realize how much force you kind of balance that glass with across all your fingers in your hand, or perhaps you do. But my ability to do certain things I mean, simple things or things that had taken practice over years, like playing the piano, were irreparably limited 
by the loss of one tiny part. It's sort of like if you've ever broken a toe or had a cut or a bad blister on one of your toes, suddenly it becomes painfully difficult, maybe even impossible to walk, and all it is is a toe. But other aspects, I noted after my injury, other aspects of life quickly renormalized as the body adjusts to compensate for the deficit in one part. For example, I spend most of my days working at a computer and my typing speed within the matter of a couple of weeks was back to normal. Just other fingers had taken over and kind of remapped how to, how to type those letters on the keyboard. And this too is an amazing part of God's design for the human body, how he has structured it to all work together and for all parts to have their, their role. And it makes me more thankful for the other nine fingers that can help to support that one that's lacking. And I see both of these realities at work in today's passage, both the need for every gift within the body, both the local church and also the church universal. But I also see the mutual care that each part extends for the others when he talks about one member suffering and the rest suffering with it. Each individual God has gifted and placed into his church is important, is critically important, and depends on the rest of the church to really be able to fully accomplish the purpose God has given it. So a question I have kind of as we start this message, actually this will, this will be our outline and we'll, we'll fill this out. I left some blanks in it maybe to just help pay attention, have something to fill out as we go along through the outline. But you'll see immediately the body of Christ is God's masterpiece. This isn't some human creation. While it involves people, it's not even a human organization. It's put together. It is ordained, created, and strengthened by God himself. I think that's an important aspect to understand in this message But as you sit here today, as you think through the body, as you think through the church, I'd like you to ask yourself, do I typically struggle or rejoice when I experience or perceive differences in the Spirit's gifting? And I know that's a very broad question. But I think as you even mull over that question a little bit, what are the differences in gifting that come to your mind as you even think of that question? Those are perhaps ones that are significant even as we go through the message to think about. And are those things that give you a a pain of jealousy? Are varying gifts you see exercised within the body, are those seen as necessary evils? Or do we perceive those as God-ordained blessings to his body? Do you ever catch yourself thinking little of or diminishing the usefulness of your gifts? Like, If I only had what someone else could do as my gift, the church would be so much better off. How about other people's gifts? Do you find yourself looking at another person and perhaps diminishing the usefulness or the need for their gifts? These are some questions I pray that will be addressed as we go through the text today. The big idea, I believe, in this passage I tried to trim some words, but it just kept getting longer and longer, is God has beautifully composed the church. Like the human body, 
because that's his metaphor that he uses, using a diversity of necessary parts, each instilled with purpose and honor in order to promote unity and accomplish his mission. You might say, Josh, that's five big ideas. No, it's one. That's one idea. So God has beautifully composed the church like the human body, using a diversity of necessary parts, each instilled with purpose and honor in order to promote unity and accomplish his mission. God's work is described in four separate ways, each corresponding to a section, a paragraph perhaps in your your Bible of Paul's thought in this chapter. So let's start as all sermons do on the first point. This body is spirit baptized. It is a singular body. So Paul introduces this metaphor of a body right away in verse 12. But speaking for myself, I've read this passage so many times, it can be a challenge to remember which actual body he's talking about. Is he talking about the body with hands and arms or is he talking about the body of the church? And Paul himself almost seems to mix the usage increasingly as he goes through the chapter to where his reference to members could imply either parts of the body or parts of the church. But at least in this introduction, Paul is talking about parts of the human body. And I find it helpful, actually. One of the commentators, Thistleton, that I was reading, does this in his translation of this passage. And he substitutes the words limbs and organs every time you see the word members. And for me, that's helpful because members is a bit of a vague term and it even carries with it a little bit of like members of an organization or of a club. But I think as you think through it this way, it will help you see what Paul is what Paul is pointing out. So we're in verse 12. For just as the human body, the body is one and has many limbs and organs, has many members, and all the limbs and organs of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Notice how he describes the relationship both forwards and backwards. The one body has many dependent parts, as well as all the dependent parts comprise one body. And that's what I mean by a singular body. Paul's starting point is that all these individual parts come together into a body. The human body is not designed as a loose connection of organs that may voluntarily work together or may voluntarily do their own thing. They can't decide to be part of the body one day, be separated the next, and then be an integral part again by the end of the week. Separation from the body for any period of time, more than a few hours, results in depletion of that body part, of the oxygenated blood supply, and it results in cellular cellular death. Now, I'm no medical expert, so there's likely exceptions to that rule. But at least at this level of metaphor that Paul is working at, to be a part of the human body implies that you're coming together in something larger than yourself. It implies a unity of both place and of purpose. And then Paul ends that part, so it is with Christ. This could initially seem like an alarming or a confusing conclusion. How does the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, fit into this metaphor, you might ask? And I was actually stumped by this for a brief bit, so don't kick yourself over it. But also don't rush past it as if it's irrelevant because it's a bit of the bow that's going to tie together at the end of the text. 
And so to kind of hint at that bow that's coming together, jump with your eyes down to verse 27, where he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So when Paul says, so it is with Christ, he's using a bit of shorthand for so it is with the body of Christ. He's connecting his metaphor of the human body to the reality of the composition of the church. He's speaking of no less than the universal church, consisting of all believers in all places in all times, those that look forward to the Messiah in faith and those who live in the wake of Jesus' redemptive crosswork, his resurrection, his ascension. We, too, are a singular body consisting of many parts and not just any body, but the body of Christ. But how do I know he's talking about more than just the church at Corinth? How do I know that this isn't narrowly scoped just to their experience? Well, let's continue reading in verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. He's saying the way that we're grafted into this body isn't by paying some membership fees, isn't even by sharing a common creed or going through an initiation ritual. Rather, the way we enter this body is by the Spirit's baptism. The body is created as the Spirit gifts people with regeneration, with a new birth, and gives them the ability to believe in Jesus. I think it's important to distinguish, actually, the baptism of the Spirit mentioned here from the water baptism that we experience and celebrate as an outward sign of being Christ's. Now, both are critically important, but Paul's point seems to be that the Spirit himself inaugurates our entry into the body of Christ by cleansing us at the moment of conversion. And then, actually, by referring to different categories of people, he actually refers to four Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, Paul is drawing attention for the Corinthians that the very people groups that would have expectation to be in conflict, that would be likely to to not come together in one body due to their belief systems, due to their scales of human worth and dignity, these very people are now brought together as a single body governed under Christ their head. There was no fundamental need, he's saying, for a Jewish church that worshiped Christ the Messiah, as well as a Greek church. Both slaves and freemen, the social classes of that day, didn't get baptized by the Spirit into separate bodies, but in Christ they were brought together into one body. Now, I don't want to belabor that point, but I actually do, because I think it's a critical one, that he's bringing all bodies by the Spirit together into one body. The reference to being made to drink of one Spirit is likely also referring to this same baptism that happens at salvation as it refers to a total saturation of the Holy Spirit's presence and work. And I can't help but think of Christ's words here from John chapter 7 because we notice how the work of the Spirit is connected to Jesus' invitation there to come and find satisfaction for our thirst. John 7, starting in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, 
Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Whatever Paul is saying about the baptism and this thirst-quenching work of the Spirit is reinforcing the principle that the same Spirit works to perform in believers the bringing together of one body, the creation of one body. So when we receive the Spirit indwelling us at salvation, and he accomplishes in us the new birth, gives us spiritual life, it is then that we are baptized by him into one body. And another text up on the screen that supplements this from Ephesians 4, starting in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, but grace, charis, the same root word that comes out in gifts in 1 Corinthians, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. How do we apply this? How do we apply this truth of the body coming together into one body by the Spirit's work? God's purpose in baptizing us into this single body by his Spirit is to create a new humanity in Christ. A humanity that's no longer separated by outward categories like social class, like ethnic identity, And this new organism is shaped from the inside out by the Spirit, and it's governed by the Word of Christ. And the diversity that can be so obvious to us externally does not negate the unity that God intends among people from every background, including the things that could otherwise divide us. There is a worth of each person in the body that is related not only to their status as image bearers, which is an important truth shared by all humanity, but it also derives from the worth of the one who redeemed them. Christ bought us by his blood and the spirit baptizes us into the church, demonstrating the significance that every part, every individual has to his work. So in speaking to a church like Corinth that was rife with division, remember the factions of chapter 1? the references to the divisions among them in chapter 1, verse 10, the references to jealousy and strife in chapter 3, we see here the design of the church was to set apart through the Spirit's work this beautifully diverse tapestry of Christ's body. Many have referred to this as unity in diversity or perhaps diversity in unity. But by the end of the message, I hope you see that it's even more than that. And there's going to be bonus points in the test for being able to describe where even these good ideas of unity and diversity fall a bit short. Just kidding, not really. Outside of your family, who do you spend most of your time around? Is it people that basically agree with you? People that have similar backgrounds as you? People that look like you? And more specifically, I put a couple of questions on the screen. Does the visible church... Now, that includes not just us, but church bodies in the U.S. and worldwide that gather and worship the Messiah. 
Does the visible church showcase, in your opinion, the diversity of God's image bearers united in one body? If not, why not? Could this be, if it happened more, could this be a helpful expression that God is calling those out from every background, from every ethnicity to worship around his throne? Is it true what's been said that the Sunday morning in America is one of the most racially segregated times of the week? And there's degrees to which that's okay, but we shouldn't be setting up those barriers intentionally. And I'm not saying that to say that we are, but I want us to think through ways that perhaps even unknowingly we have structured things or we could structure things to promote instead of one body, many bodies. And second, maybe more applicable to us, in what ways could our local church family, Grace and Truth, better illustrate that we are not brought by the Spirit into a church of people that necessarily look and think exactly like us, that necessarily shop at the same type of stores, eat at the same restaurants, but a body of believers that are united only by the Spirit and his work. Well, Paul doesn't stop there because he now turns and offers a two-part rationale for this diversity in unity. First, that those being saved into the body come from all ethnic and socioeconomic brackets of the ancient world. But secondly, looking forward into verse 14 now, that that's how the human body works, with many members comprising one body. And let's look now at how God placed each part into the body for a specific purpose. This is how God placed. God placed each member in the body. This is a chosen diversity. The next thought bubble we encounter in the text is going to draw out the manyness of the body. It can't be fully represented by any single part on its own. It needs all the parts. So read that summary statement with me in verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. He's metaphorically speaking again. The body does not consist of one limb. The body does not consist of one organ, but of many. So the starting point is that. And I like thinking of this requirement as the difference between an organ, not the kind you play, but an organ like a bodily organ, and an organism. An organ has a purpose, but it doesn't exist on its own. It exists as part of a larger whole, or it dies. And so it is with the body. It's made up of many different organs, each with their own purpose that support the larger organism. And the examples to follow include talking body parts, like feet and ears. So if this doesn't provide, as you're reading along here, if this doesn't provide at least a moment of levity, as you picture in your mind, I'm not sure you're reading it right. Paul likes to use extreme statements, perhaps seemingly outlandish statements, to arrest our attention and those of the Corinthian readers. And he does it to great effect under the inspiration of his spirit. This highlights the foolishness of physical body parts thinking they're unimportant in comparison to the rest, and that as a result, they aren't really part of the body. So imagine for a minute the actual body parts doing the talking as we hear them question their respective value to the body. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. 
Again, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? The foot and the ear are body parts that we can imagine might be tempted to look at other parts and see them as more essential and themselves as non-essential by comparison. In doing so, they make the hypothetical assertion, because I'm not this, I don't belong to the body. And Paul responds to that by saying that even if the foot thinks it's worthless, it doesn't diminish its importance, its value to the body, similarly with the ear feeling lesser than the eye. Just when you thought he was finished, though, Paul extends this metaphorical lesser-than body part concern to their logical extreme. He says, what if the entire body were one big eye? How would it go about hearing in that scenario? His point being that both parts are essential to the properly designed function. Similarly, if the whole body were an ear, not only will it look funny, but it would be lacking all of the other functions, like the smelling that the nose brings to the literal table. His conclusion is that if the entire body were to be the same part, it would then cease to be a body. I think that's important. If the entire body were the same part, it would stop being a body. It would be an organ and lack the function of all the other parts. So now back to the design of the body, not an accidental arrangement of parts, but it's of divine design. And he says here, it's not only the quote-unquote important parts that are arranged by God, but the text highlights that every single one of the body parts was placed by God by his choice. Let's look at that together, starting in verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? The intentionality that God places or puts or arranges or assembles the parts together is mind-boggling. How each part contributes to the health and safety and well-being of the rest of the body is itself a testament to his good design. But God didn't simply arrange the members. He did it with purpose. He did it with intentionality. It says he did it as he chose. It wasn't an accident. And he did it for the mutual good of the body at large. This would not be true if all were the same organ. Then the body itself would cease to exist. Similarly, At the end of this point, I think it's appropriate to see how God would want to apply this to us. God's purpose for the diversity of the body is revealed in this section. He hasn't specifically yet mentioned the church. Remember, that's what the human body metaphor is all pointing toward. Ultimately, the final point he makes is going to get there. Because in the church, we do have a diversity of gifts. That was one of the the key takeaways last week. In the beginning of the chapter 12. But when we actually see the diversity of gifts with our eyes, when we experience them, do we see that, experience that as a good thing or a bad thing? Perhaps we might even not see them as gifts, but as less than desirable differences. Like, why can't they think more like me? Because that would be simpler. We would function, maybe we think more easily together if everyone thought like me. But if everyone thought like me, that would be a scary place. We need the diversity of gifts, of perspectives, of backgrounds. 
Paul here is specifically talking about gifts given by God, but we need those variations for what God is doing in his church. So how do we apply then this section as various parts of the body of Christ? One way would be to recognize that some individuals might have a propensity to diminish their own importance to the rest of the body. You might think, I come here and I worship here and I maybe even join here, but as part of a way to help my spiritual life, as a way to help me grow in maturity in Christ. And those are both true, but they're missing your importance to the rest of the body as you exercise your gifts given specifically by God That is his grace to the rest of the body. Or vice versa, we might look at other individuals, not just looking at ourselves and thinking less than, but look at others with jealousy in which we had certain gifts. Like that hand or that ear looking to another part. Or maybe we look inwardly and see them as less than and ourselves as less than by extension. So a few questions to kind of draw that out a bit. I'd like us to really take a moment to honestly consider this in response to the text. Do you struggle to see your spiritual gifting as valuable to the function and the mission of the church? Do you struggle to see your spiritual gifting as valuable to the function and mission of the church? How does the truth that God placed each and every part of the church by his choice influence your perspective on your own gifting? And what does God by his spirit say of your place in the body? He chooses each part, he composes each part, and he places them into the body by his choice. But God not only placed the members in the body, as important as that is, But like a master artist, like an intricate craftsman, like a divine orchestrator, we see that he assembles them in a way that uniquely brings the body together so that the sum of the individual parts is much, much greater, much, much more beautiful and accomplishes much, much more than it would otherwise. For our third point, let's look then at how God composed God composed in what I'm calling an inverted hierarchy. This will cover from verse 20 through verse 26. The end of the second paragraph in most translations, I think, opens this section, actually, where he says, As it is, there are many body parts, yet one body. Remember how I mentioned the last section was emphasizing the manyness, the diversity? Well, Paul here, under inspiration, wants us to remember that even with diversity, there is still that one body that the Spirit placed us into. But his point is going to extend beyond, again, that diversity and unity thought construct. And it's going to serve to highlight how God composes the body together. Also, in contrast, the last section, we're going to have a challenge here against the heightening of our own gifts above those of others. Remember the last section, the body parts were looking at themselves and thinking less than. This is where they may look at themselves and think They're more important than the others. We're back to the talking body parts, the eye and the head in this section, probably considered more essential, more necessary parts. 
they can't rightfully diminish the significance of other limbs or organs. Let's read that text, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. This is directed again to those with spiritual gifts that may be seen by the church as more important or desirable. Maybe they're the publicly prominent ones or they align with the the value that broader society puts on certain things. In Corinth, we see that that was that uh, public oratory was one of the things that they valued. Also, we see from these chapters that the speaking in tongues was something that in the church was significantly valued. But Paul is using the metaphor to remind them that they can't look to others in the body as less significant based on how we tend to value their gifts. The truly beautiful reality is that God accounts for this tendency to exalt the strong and prominent and diminish the weaker and less publicly prominent. And look at how he does this in the text, starting at verse 22, where he says, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Rather than follow the world's idea of what's important, of what's valued, God's kingdom again turns these world-originated orders onto their head. He turns it upside down. That's why I'm calling this inverted hierarchy. God isn't, God isn't even saying here that some of the gifts may be more needful than others. But he's saying, in order to promote unity, I'm going to vary the amount of honor that we give to certain gifts, certain roles. As a result, the ones that might tend to get neglected or treated as less significant according to earthly standards are given greater honor and pointed to as indispensable in the arrangement of God. So it is with the human body to a large degree. The most critical parts are the ones that are covered, the ones we can't see the ones that are protected either by skin and ribs or even by our clothing. The visible parts, like the head, is often given priority because for some of us that's where the beauty is. Not speaking of myself, of course. Or the hands. We we emphasize the value of the hands because that's where the strength is. But the parts of the anatomy that Paul refers to as the ones we think less honorable, that are unpresentable, Most scholars agree he's euphemistically referring actually to the genitalia, the private parts that are so necessary for reproduction, for life itself. Now, these parts are not for public display. They're not for for being put in a prominent place. You might even feel my awkwardness in discussing that right now, but no one questions that they're important, that they're even essential. And I found these words from one of the commentators a garland, very helpful. It's a little bit longer reading, so I'll put it on the screen if that helps. He said, A body can survive without eyes, ears, hands, and feet, but it cannot survive without the function of these unpresentable parts. Genitalia appear to be honorless, are regarded as unpresentable, and are shown a special modesty. Their function is not public, and they are kept hidden but they're essential to the body's survival. In the same manner, the persons with deceptively ordinary 
and unprestigious gifts are as necessary for the proper functioning of the community as those who put on a more glittery display. All are of equal value, but if there is to be any overcompensation, it is to be for the less favored. The church is not to be like its surrounding society, which always honors those who are already honored. It is to be countercultural and bestow the greatest honor on those who seem to be negligible. Now we'll apply this further in a few minutes or seek to by the Spirit, but think for a moment about the essential parts of Christ's body that have the potential to be ignored. Maybe they're critical ministries that just happen each week, or from your viewpoint, they just happen each week. And very few people even know that it's happening. Maybe they're not even formal ministries, but they're informal things that are done from the home, checking in on or visiting others in the body throughout the week, ministering to other needs you know of, ministering mercy in your community. Maybe those unpresentable parts even include those who have struggled significantly in their life. Maybe they've struggled with periods of addiction that may take more of our time and care. Maybe we're even tempted to give up on them as they're striving for faithful obedience to Christ. Or maybe it's a segment of the broader church, the church universal, that we think less noteworthy or even are embarrassed by due to cultural or other differences. Each of these, I think, could be the part that God calls indispensable and worthy of greater honor. Now, Paul is going to give the divine purpose behind this greater honor. Notice the truth again that it's not accidental. It's God's arrangement of the body, the masterful hand of the creator making each part its way. Like the composer or arranger of a beautiful piece of music, God intended for the honor to be distributed by his plan. For this reason, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. What an amazing purpose that God had for his masterful composition to eliminate division in the body. And just as the human body can't sustain life for long, when the individual parts become divided, they start working against each other, so it is with Christ's body. So by giving honor in greater proportion to spiritual gifts that could be neglected, God's arrangement ensures the church can't give priority to only public, seemingly important gifts and doing so still remain a healthy church. The body of Christ ought to, I would say, even must honor the sacrificial service of the janitor, the children's worker, the prayer warrior, the one who never speaks up front, as much or more than the one who stands on the platform with more public gifts. 